brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to all kinds of writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm going to be talking to Hanif Abdul-Rakib, a poet, music journalist and essayist who has been described as a crash course in emotional honesty. He was recently awarded a MacArthur Fellowship and his book, A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance, recently received the 2022 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. Hanif, lovely to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's good to talk with you. Where do you begin to filter black performance? Because you could do volumes of this, right? Well, yeah, you know, I, I think that for me, the project of the book was expanding the definition of what I believe not only performance to be, but also kind of um, walking back some of the pejorative nature of the word performative and performativity, which I think don't always honor or bode well for the person in the, in the midst of performing. What is of more value, how it makes you feel or how it makes others feel? I mean, for me, it's how it makes me feel. I think that I'm at my best as a performer when I feel good or when I feel ultimately like I am serving myself. You know, I, I haven't done a lot of in-person readings lately. I did my first two in a long time this weekend. And I was so concerned about that. I was concerned because I, you know, I put a lot of effort and energy in, into the in-person reading. And I hadn't done it in so long. You know, you kind of, um, you worry that you fall out of practice or you've fallen out of practice. But halfway through the first one, I felt good. I knew, you know, I'm an athlete too. I grew up playing sports and there are parts of this where even now when I go on a run, early in the run, I'll know if this is going to be a good one or if this is going to be a hard one to get through. And um, there to me is nothing like that feeling of, of getting to go on cruise control and knowing that I'm kind of in a lane that I am not only familiar with, but immensely comfortable in. And to, to be afforded that in the performance space, it unlocks something for me. And I think to get to that point also makes it so that I'm performing as best as I can for an audience. There's one thing I always think about as a person of color in the UK is the kind of three stages of fame. Hood famous, when the people in your neighborhood know who you are. Mm -hmm. Then there's the community famous, where the community know where you are. And then there's white famous, where you're mainstream. Yeah. Do you think that you can get to the white famous without compromise? I mean, I think so, in part because you don't have any control over the level of fame you achieve. Now, there are some artists who seek that out aggressively. But I think when you're talking about like writers and even to some, to some extent music makers, when you put things in the world, you don't actually have control over how people respond to them or the spoils of that response, you know? But I, yeah, I mean, I, for me, what that means is, am I still who I am? Have I not compromised perhaps the first two levels of, of fame? Like, have I not turned away from those first two levels of fame in service of the third level of fame? That's easier to do as a writer, I think, particularly for me as a writer who like lives in the community I grew up in. I, I'm, you know, I live on the east side of Columbus where I was born and raised. You know, it's, it's easier to be, and I'm not necessarily, I at least am not really beholden to 
the world outside of this one. I really love Columbus and I love the community I'm in and I love how I've been embraced here. And I don't really want anything more than that. It's easy. It's, you know, it's like there's a joyful simplicity to that. Now, truth be told, you know, I don't think everyone feels that way. You know, I think there are a lot of people who might be in pursuit of something greater, but I'm too anxious perhaps for anything else. I like an environment where I feel like I everyone I am known and cared for by everyone. And then there are people here who cared for me before I wrote anything. And I think that's a real marker of community cares is, you know, there are people here who care for me the same that they did before I had a book or before I wrote an essay or any of that. So what does, if the word matters to you at all, what does success look like for you? It doesn't really matter a whole lot to me. Because to me, you know, I only ever wanted to write one book. I didn't expect to write any more than one book. I wanted to write one book of poems. And I did. And and that to me was success. You know, my, my mother was a writer and who worked a job she didn't love and came home and wrote in her spare time and never got to put out a book. And so I got to put out a book and that was it. You know, it's like, well, this is a real marker of success. And anything that comes after this is, you know, so in some ways I've already achieved my level of success because um, now my idea of success is, do I have the time to live a life that feels like it is doing more than just taking from me? I'm a busy person. You know, I have a pretty robust schedule, but I'm also pretty rigorous. I try to be pretty rigorous about rest and about recharging myself with things I enjoy. To me, success is being able to have the boundaries that allow me to kind of recharge in a way that I enjoy. You know, like if I can shut down my work at like five o'clock or 4.30 and go and play a video game for a couple hours, that's success to me. You know, it's not necessarily what the work does, but it's in some ways perhaps what the work affords. And, and if it affords a kind of freedom that keeps me close to my pleasures, then I, I think that feels like success to me. And what about representation, the winning of awards, the increasing of profile, and then the glare of you now will be asked to represent a community? Yeah. How comfortable are you with the thought that as a person of color, you're put in a position where people expect certain things of you? I fear that those people are going to just have to be let down, perhaps. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm i in no position to represent anyone. I can't even represent the people who I know and love dearly. They deserve to represent themselves. Now, I'm not a fool, right? Like, I understand that by default, higher visibility means that people make the assumptions of representation. But I actually think so much of my work revolves around pushing back against that. You know, I'm so anti-scarcity. And I think sometimes what happens is with any levels of success and any levels of visibility, there are people who imagine that the quote unquote successful invisible person is representing all people who fit into whatever demographic that is believed that they should be representing. I would like to really divest from that idea. I would like to really separate from that idea if I could. It doesn't seem to me that it serves anyone. It mostly serves this idea of um, a monolithic, in my case, black voice, which is uh, not accurate or, or very useful. You know, I think particularly in the States, you know, although, although I think this is a global affliction, but in the States, the imagination around black existence is so narrow. And I actually think these kind of, um, you know, couching representation within one single person furthers that narrowing. And so if I could push back against that, I, I will. And I, you know, if anyone's looking to me for, for representation, I, I think they might be disappointed. 
I had a very strange Twitter exchange this week, mm-hmm. Hanif, with someone who is also of South Asian heritage, who was particularly alarmed by the incident that took place at the Oscars between Will Smith and Chris Rock, because it reinforced stereotypes for racists about violent black men, to which I replied, we don't cater our behaviours for how racists see us. Right. It's like a bizarre idea. Also, the, the racists aren't going to, they, they were going to believe what they're going to believe anyway. Right. They're, they're, they're racist for a reason. You know, it's not like, um, <laughs> right. I, I mean, I'm just not interested in winning the hearts and minds of racists personally. Um, <laughs> if racists believe that black people are violent, they maybe then let them believe that. Actually, I would I would encourage them to believe that in their hearts and minds, because if that will keep them out of my orbit, if if they're so afraid of me that it will keep them out of my orbit, then whatever, that's cool. I can't occupy my time or energy with a kind of decorum that might change the hearts and minds of people who are already a little bit invested in a narrative of of the dangers of black people. I was saddened when you were telling a story about a gas clerk in Mississippi warning you, a black gas clerk, just 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 tell us what this person kind of advice. Oh well it was in the yeah in the they gave you when you went to yeah, fill up in the green book piece, uh in the book. I was talking about kind of the 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 unique affection that comes with traveling while black in some places when you encounter another black person who's maybe he will impart some some wisdom or some advice upon you. And I remember being warned about traveling on certain roads and traveling to certain places. And this was in Mississippi, but it's happened in a great many places that I've been, and not just in the American South. I lived in Connecticut for about two and a half years. And these warnings actually in Connecticut were a bit more robust. I would get more warnings from Black people in neighborhoods about uh, the very particular kind of racism that might pop up in places. And the idea in that piece is that uh, in some ways, we're kind of charting a, a, a green book towards each other. Or we're building a new green book for ourselves. There's a treachery to that. There's something nefarious underneath that. But I actually think what's on top of that, the action that's resting on top of that is an affectionate action, or the attempt at, at the action on top of that is an affectionate one. Can you explain that further? What do you mean? It's it's someone, a stranger, who looks upon another stranger and has an impulse to keep them safe. You know, the same way I do. I mean, you know, there's places in Ohio I would warn people to keep an eye out or, or or if you're going there, you know, take care of yourself in these ways or drive through this town before getting gas. These things. Now, would I like it more if these warnings didn't have to be issued? Of course. But I do appreciate that there's an ecosystem or a network inside of which I can communicate specifically with other black folks about ways for them to arrive wherever they're going safely. Even if they don't know me, there's a trust there built into the interaction just because you live here, you've been here, you know here, and I don't know here. You know, when that happened in Mississippi, when it's happened in Connecticut, when it's happened in the Pacific Northwest, it's these things where these people are saying, I know this place and I'd like you to survive it. And I think there's something really gentle about that. Talk me through the experience of going to watch Green Book with your friend. Not all of it, of course. Yeah, yeah, I didn't finish it. A terrible movie for me. But I also think 
I maybe wasn't the right audience for Green Book. I mean, clearly I was not the right audience for Green Book. But another layer of why I was not the right audience for Green Book is because I genuinely really like Don Shirley. I really love Don Shirley's music. And I think Don Shirley's history as a musician is so fascinating. I know I touched on it a bit in the book, but... And so I don't know what I was expecting out of the movie. I'm not very good at, um, I should get better at this, but I'm not very good at like reading summaries or reviews or anything like that. I just will pop out to the movies. And so I don't know what I was expecting, but to kind of see Don Shirley's life reduced and pushed through the lens of this interaction with a white driver, which is ultimately pushing it through the lens of this idealized racial harmony. It actually, I think, stripped him of some real autonomy and also stripped his story of real autonomy and his brilliance of real autonomy. And, you know, needless to say, like his, his, I know his family didn't really rock with the movie either. And so I, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a good experience, but it, it was interesting to me to see, this was one of those examples of a time where I felt like I, I was living in a different world than everyone else, because I remember being so bothered by that movie and not enjoying it at all. But then very quickly seeing that everyone loved it. I mean, everyone just was like, yeah, well, that's not true. I don't know many black folks who loved it. But in terms of the decoration, that the kind of uh, once it hit the realm of white famous, as you might say, it was so beloved. And I thought, I don't know where I was like, I just think that maybe like there are very different worlds that people occupy. Not always, but definitely right now. And our pop culture consumption really defines the boundaries of those worlds, I think. And that was a perfect example you know, the reaction to the Green Book from the Black folks I knew versus the reaction in the wider world of media was was surprising to me. Another stark example of that in the book is the comedy, specifically the sketches of Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. What fascinates you about this particular moment in time of Dave Chappelle and those sketches that you describe and the effect they had on different people from different worlds. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at, you know, we're talking about Chappelle show, Eric Chappelle, what seemed to eventually eat away at him was that the audience, you know, part of the argument of the book, explicit or not, is about how easily an audience can become part of a performance. And Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, for example, the audience transmits the energy from the choir and then becomes the choir, right? And this caused some problems with the Chappelle Show era version of Dave Chappelle, because there's one thing to say, you are entering the doors of this church, and upon entering the doors of this church, there is somewhat an unspoken contract that if the spirit moves you, then you are welcome to perform that. And that harms no one, that tears away at no one. But the church built by the Chappelle Show was perhaps one that was too large and too welcoming and had no restrictive filters in place. And so that meant that once an audience got access, they felt like they had access to all of it, to revel in all of it. And it seems like what you know caught Dave Chappelle up was the age old question of what exactly are people laughing at? Specifically in his case, white people. It's like, okay, well, I don't know what part of this that white people are laughing at. I can't figure it out. And that's the kind of math that, I mean, that's math you don't really wanna be you don't want to spend too much time doing that math because uh, the results of it might not be pleasing. And um, one of the, the reasons that he could just got out entirely. Now, of course, Chappelle, the present day, is a little bit less interested in that, the nuances of that math. But for at one point he was. And 
I don't know if, you know, I'm not ascribing any kind of nobility to being interested or disinterested in that math. I'm just saying that if one spends too much time kind of wading through the mystery of that math, they might not like what's on the other side. But that mathematical equation, if I'm not stretching the metaphor too far, poses quite a challenge for a person of colour who is going into particularly that world of comedy. Well, it's tricky. You know, so many of the comics that I grew up loving and watching, and I think about like stuff like Comic View that come on BET, where Black comics just knew they could look out in the audience and know who they're performing for and get a feel for what people were laughing at. When it's a show, when it's a sketch show, and so much of how it exists in the cultural conversation is through regurgitation, people kind of regurgitating moments and throwing them back into the world and all that, that's a bit trickier. It, it lives a bit longer than perhaps a stand-up routine in a comedy club night. You have to, like, some of that stuff in the Chappelle show, you really got to be questioning. That math comes to the forefront because it's it's in a question of what is being regurgitated and why. Who's doing the regurgitation and why exactly are they doing it and what are they getting out of it? If we rewind decades earlier, what did Soul Train achieve, do you think, Don Cornelius and Soul Train? Because it wasn't expected to be as big as a hit as it was. Well, you know, I can speak mostly for me and say that it was such a revelatory thing to just see Black people on TV in a very simplistic role that did not have any kind of morality exercise attached to it. You know, folks were just dancing. And that was the actual propulsive engine of the show was just like black people dancing that's it and through soul train you could trace an entire portion of black history black fashion black politics black hair i just by watching it even if i watched it with no sound on right like you know of course you're tracing black music too but if, if i watched it with no sound on the aesthetics of black culture could be traced through decades just by watching soul train and that to me is fascinating. There's, it's like an archive, a really joyful archive that was built on a really simple foundation. This was, you know, I came up at a time, and I don't, again, I'm not disparaging these times either, but I came up in a time of just like the black sitcom and the black TV show. And so many of them were tied to overarching morality themes. And um, I appreciated some of that as a kid, but Soul Train blew me away because it was like, there's nothing here except for the pleasure of Black people moving. And that's it. They don't have to answer to any kind of thing beyond the physicality of, of pleasure. Did you have to give yourself the space, Hanif, to explore culture beyond that which society would tell you you should be a part of? And the reason I ask that question is once I was hosting an event where a young Black woman put her hand up and she said, I'm not into rap music, and I know you are. She said, I'm into guitar bands. And because I don't talk a certain way, I don't dress a certain way, and this is in the UK, should that other black people feel that somehow I've sold out. Now, I right. know you were going to see punk bands in Detroit and Chicago, and I know you're a huge fan of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. yeah. Did you have to give yourself that permission to do that, to be that person? No. No, thankfully, I mean, I was very lucky in that all the people who kind of put me on to the really wide and vast range of things I came to love were Black folks. You know, coming up in the 90s with older siblings and 
friends who had older siblings. And at the golden age of college radio, which was big here, I mean, everyone Black I knew was just listening to such a wide range of things. My brother loved metal. My sister loved grunge. Like These kind of things were filtered down to me through other Black people. And so I never even, you know, on my school bus, the older kids would be passing around tapes of punk. You know, the first like punk tape I heard was dubbed by an older kid in my neighborhood, like an older high school kid, Black kid. And so it never occurred to me as something outside of any cultural norm or expectation because the Black people around me were filtering these things to me. I never questioned it. It was something I never questioned. It was just kind of um, a part of my life. And now, granted, I probably wasn't thinking about it this deeply at the time, but looking back, it's just, you know, an example of the many ways there are to be Black when you're in a broad and multitudinous community of people who share things, you know, who like eagerly share the things they're excited about. Now, this isn't to say that there were some, you know, of course there were kids who were only into hip hop and only into, but there was just never any kind of ridicule attached to liking anything. No. And I know that wasn't the case for everyone. I I count myself fortunate to have grown up in that way. Right. So you, by saying that, you understand that, right? And I'm not trying to patronize you that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a difference. And I, I think some of this is regional, but also, you know, I was always someone who was so eager to find my people because I believe I knew, you know, even when I was young, that I would need these kind of allies. I would need the kind of black punks, you know. If I ever wanted to go to punk shows on the regular, I would need to be rolling with some black punks. And so I wanted to find them early. And and in some ways, I wanted to, to eagerly convert my friends, you know. It's that kind of thing, too, where a part of music sharing for me when I was a kid and for a lot of people around me was about building a the act of conversion, building people into converts. And so I would like sneak punk songs on all the mixes I made for my homies. And that's just how we, that was our communication point. What interests you most about people? Um, I think that we all kind of have, or at least many people have stories they can tie back to a song or an album or a piece of pop culture. I want to hear those. Those fascinate me. They allow for me to kind of um, widen the expectations I have for what music or film or TV or all these things can do. It adds kind of a a level of seriousness to something that I otherwise might brush off as frivolous, even though it's never been frivolous to me. How did Tribe Called Quest widen your horizons? Well, in specific, because they were the first rap group that I saw my parents be at least somewhat accepting of, (laughs) you know, because of the, the sampling and because of the jazz sound, all of these things. You know, to see a rap group, now grant my parents don't love rap still, my dad doesn't love rap, I don't believe, but to see a rap group that my parents back then deemed as appropriate and acceptable, that meant that I could play them in my house outside of headphones. That meant that they could fill a room. And that alone, you know, that again, freedom, right? Any kind of small window towards freedom, take it and, and, and make it as wide as possible. As we're on the subject of music, let's start talking about the objects that you bought for us today. Yeah. Hanif, and let's start with the first album you bought. First album that I ever got was Mariah Carey's Music Box on cassette because it, you know, I love, I, I like Mariah Carey a lot, but in the moment it was just affordable, you know, what I had the money for. You know, I grew up with a lot of money and I also grew up in a home where people bought albums a lot. You know, my brother had a robust cassette collection and I would sometimes go to the tape stores with them and all that. And Music Box was was like on in the bargain bin for like three bucks, you know. But that was the first album I bought. Yeah. 
Were your older siblings accepting or was there some musical snobbery? Oh, I think they were accepting. I was very lucky. I think my older siblings like had their tastes. But again, so much of what I, I think that they were interested in was imparting their tastes upon, you know, anyone, their younger siblings or anyone, but in doing it without judgment. Yeah. And secondly, your favorite childhood book? The People Could Fly by Virginia Hamilton. Virginia Hamilton is an Ohioan and... It was important for me as a kid to kind of read Black folk tales because I grew up among people who were immersed in the oral tradition. That involves storytelling and oral storytelling. And to hear kind of wide-ranging stories of Black people doing spectacular things, I turned to folklore. And this book is maybe the highest example of really brilliant, breathtaking Black folklore. Growing up in the school system in Ohio, what are you taught about cultural heroes, cultural pioneers who are Black? Not much. You know, you kind of, during Black History Month, you kind of gloss over the stories. I was lucky in elementary school to have Black teachers, a Black principal, who really put effort into educating students about Black history being made, particularly in, in Columbus, Ohio. And so I knew of prominent Black figures right on my, in my neighborhood, which was vital. And I don't think everyone has that. It was good to have that. How empowering was that for you? Oh, it was cool. You know, it was like finding out superheroes lived right on your block, you know? I mean, I didn't think that I would ever be someone who created art or anything like that, but it was just nice to know that I lived in a city where Black people were making good things. So when you look back to that childhood and knowing who you are now and what you do, can you see the clues evidence that you were going to become who you've become? No. Really? I mean, I, no, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Because so much of this is unexpected, even my adulthood, you know, I never really wanted to this. I, I, I still think that there are, there are clues in that I read a lot. I was curious. I told a lot of stories for better or worse, often for worse when I was a kid, but I didn't think about anything like this would be my life. No. Intriguing that you were told that your reviews were, and I'm using your words here, uh, were initially rambling and too poetic, and they went on for too long. Yes, yeah. When you write now, what about that balance of the, the poetic urge and that flair that you have with language, and then getting the balance right? How do you get the existence of poetry within prose? Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it's simple. I'm always seeking beautiful language. I'm seeking a way to tell a story using beautiful language. And so I don't even think about it like poetry. I just think about it in, as the pursuit of the most efficient and beautiful way to tell a story that can detour, that can rely on these flourishes. And I think that what happens is what people would call poetry, but I don't think about it. I don't know if I think about it in that way. Let's get on to another object, and this is from your desk. Oh, yeah, I'm actually playing with it. It's just a, it's a piece, no one can actually see this, but it's a gold pyrite crystal that I got on a trip to Zion National Park in 2019. I have a couple crystals on my desk. I keep this one close because it's like got a nice weight to it, and it's nice to kind of fumble around with while I'm writing or while I'm talking, and it's just aesthetically pleasing. What is uh, your writing process? I mean, do you have to spend set amount of hours? Can it be at any time of the day? It can't be at any time. I mean, I, I stop working at five, no matter what. And so I do my best writing, perhaps in that in-between time of like one to five. But it's not as strict as possible, mostly because I like to give myself leeway. I like to be generous with myself. I want to say I'm in new book writing mode right now, and I'm 
I'm writing 25,000 words a month and I mostly kind of am just going with the flow. Like this month I wrote 25,000 words in like two and a half weeks. And so I got to take the rest of the month off to kind of do other things. And next month I might write 25,000 words, like right up against the 30th day of the month. And most of my writing practice is how do I make myself fine with the kind of um, uneven nature of writing? Why do you place such strict parameters on your writing? We finish at five, we do 25K a month. Why? Well, because I think if I don't, then, I, uh, then I'm maybe not being good to myself. If I don't say this is what I can try to do and this is what I hope to do, then I, you know, then I will be working well into the night and I, you know, cutting into the time I need for pleasure and recharge. And I, that's just as being able to recharge myself is just as vital to, to the practice of writing as anything else. What were you brought up to think about the work ethic? I'm lazy, but, but very disciplined. And I think that's maybe, uh, <laughs> Amazing. you know, my, my parents worked very hard. My parents were both hardworking and disciplined, but I'm, I'm actually pretty lazy I just am a very disciplined person and that's what works for me. You know, I'll never be as hardworking as I saw my father being or as I saw my mother being, but I can be more disciplined than anyone I know. And I think I am. What, why define lazy? Cause you clearly have a work ethic. My work ethic is like propelled by discipline though. You know, I, the reason I set these parameters is because it's easier for me to understand work in that way. It's easier for me to understand, like I can write this many words and that's my work for the day. Now, it actually doesn't take me that long to write 25,000 words in a month. It's, you know, 2,500 words a day for 10 days or 2,000 words a day for 15 days or whatever. Now, there are some people who would get to 25,000 words by like the 15th or 16th of a month and then say, well, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to see if I can hit 40,000 because I'm that determined. For me, it's like I got to my 25,000. What else can I do to take some time off? So, yeah, maybe lazy is too harsh of a word, but... I'm not particularly motivated. I'm very disciplined. But the things that you want to do outside of that 25,000 words are not to do nothing. They're still to be creative in different spheres. Perhaps, but sometimes they are to do nothing. You know, to be clear, like sometimes I do. Well, that's, and that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, we all need to do nothing. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I mostly, I remain disciplined so that I can get out of the confines of work as quickly as possible so I can do the other things that I enjoy. What are those things? Listening to records and going record shopping, messing around in my sneaker room. I have a pretty robust sneaker collection. Taking long walks lately. You know, I'm a runner. I go on runs. These kind of things. Just like the, the, the small things that fill out my days where I'm, you know, not necessarily beholden to other people. Uh, what do you think about, because I, I like to collect sneakers as well. Do you think about the evolution of that? as something that came from a culture to something that has come as a trading of a commodity. Oh, of course. I mean, that's the way it goes, though. Anything that's in the cultural conversation for long enough gets commodified, and sneakers are especially easy to do that. Now, for me, I, I kind of keep my head down and just chase after the things I love. But uh, yeah, I mean, sneaker culture is, has far gone beyond like folks buying sneakers because they love them. And we're into another territory now entirely. And how does that make you feel? I know you've commented before about perhaps people my age, because I'm an old school hip hop head complaining about rap that's around today, which, by the way, I don't do because I, I judge by the principle I'm yet to hear the best rap music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that, that makes me excited about whatever news coming along. But yeah, but what do you think about people who, or you, what do you think yourself about where the reselling sites and 
Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately those are doing immense damage to young folks who are eager to keep up with trends. And I think it is, it's preying on people's ability to actually love sneakers as, as an object or as history and not just a vessel for more commerce and all that. But I don't resell. I don't really buy from resellers. I kind of just keep my head down and, and, and get the things I dig. And, and I, you know, that's easier for me now because I have connections in the, after buying sneakers for so long and all that. But yeah, I trend away from resellers. Uh, something that appears in one of your books is the movie, The Prestige. Uh, why? I love magic or I love the idea of magic. And I actually love the magic trick for how it appears in that film, how it breaks down to its elements. It's like core elements of something that has three distinct steps and is not only about fooling someone, but is also about giving them hope for a return, which is why I love the prestige itself, the final part of the magic trick that executes the return. I'm so fascinated by this idea that something can be taken away and the promise is that it might come back. And so, yeah, magic fascinates me on just a baseline level because of what it asks of an audience. And lastly, because I know you have to go, an object you really should have thrown out. Because I have a lot of sneakers there, there's a pair I have um, that I love where the sole, there's a pair of Air Maxes I got from an original pair from like the early 80s and the soles crumbled and came off and they can't be repaired and they need to be thrown away, but I'm just holding on to them because I, I think they're a piece of history, but also they're just kind of gross and taking up closet space at this point. So maybe I'll throw them away today. Hanif Abdurraqib, you go and get your flight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. <laughs> I appreciate y'all so much. Take care. Safe travels. Hanif, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure exploring your thoughts, your mind and your life, and most importantly, your book, A Little Devil in America, in praise of black performance. And thank you, the listener, wherever you are, listening to the penguin podcast we'll be back in two weeks when izzy sutty will be talking to asma khan about inheriting a love of food and why she insists on a female only kitchen at her restaurant darjeeling express don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out and finally as ever if you want to find out more about this podcast or hanif's work go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts i'm nihal arthur i shall see you soon 